Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show all about building and investing in companies, featuring interviews with startup founders, investors, and operators, sharing the best insights into the world of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Jordan DeSico, founder of Super Coffee, a company valued at more than $200 million as of middle 2020, and a company producing better-for-you beverages. Jordan was a Peter Thiel fellow, he was on season 9 of Shark Tank, and in 2018 was on the Forbes 30 Under 30. In this episode, we go through a wide variety of topics, including how Jordan started this company with his brothers, why he decided to bring them in in the first place, his decision to drop out of university, give up his scholarship in order to pursue Super Coffee full-time, raising capital through family and friends, then angel investors, the process of manufacturing, gain distribution, his experience on Shark Tank and how they went from 100 stores to 35,000 stores and 500 distributors in four years, getting into e-commerce as a viable channel for their product, and so much more in this episode with Jordan about his journey with Super Coffee. As always, these show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast, and you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. Without further ado, here is Jordan DeSico, founder of Super Coffee. Jordan, welcome to the show. Justin, thanks so much for having me, man. I really appreciate it. Looking forward to this. Yeah, thanks for coming on, man. And there's uh, so much to discuss with, with Super Coffee. And I think for people who, the, the one or two people who haven't heard about it, <laughs> what are you guys doing differently at Super Coffee? Oh, man, we are uh, just working hard and being nice to people. We are taking care, <laughs> taking care of our teams and making sure they're taking care of our partners. And uh, we're having a lot of fun doing it, that's for sure. <laughs> and with this as well, so I, a lot of people are familiar, probably from Shark Tank originally yeah. a few years ago, but how did this first get started, even before Shark Tank? How did this first get started in the first place, Jordan? Yeah, so in 2015, um, so a little over five years ago now, I was a freshman student athlete. I played basketball at Philadelphia University, and I loved coffee, um, but we would have 5 a.m. practices, and I found myself uh, falling asleep in class after 5 a.m. practice, um, <laughs> didn't have time to, to make my own coffee. So ran into the school store one day to look for an energy drink or a bottled coffee. Um, and everything that was available was loaded with sugar, artificial ingredients, and just things that I wouldn't put into my body. Um, so I thought there has to be something better out there. I started doing some research um, and there wasn't. Uh, there, there truly wasn't a product that tasted great was great for you and was affordable. So that's what I set out to create just for myself in my dorm room um, as a student athlete. But it worked so well for me that um, I started actually selling it to my teammates and my classmates <laughs> on campus. And then uh, at the end of my freshman year, I had a, uh, my brother, Jake, went to, he played football at Georgetown. Uh, I said, hey man, this is kind of what I want to do. I want to start a coffee company. You want to join me? He said, yes. So I moved in with him that summer. Um, and we started to craft a business plan and get ready to launch the business down there. I can definitely relate to the, the 5 a.m. practices. I had <laughs> I had football practices. There was like two different slots in spring ball, I remember, for workouts. And it was like a 4.45 a.m. and like a 5.15 a.m. Yeah. And the struggle was definitely real after that in terms of you have your whole day ahead of you and you've been up that early. Uh, something like this would have been helpful. That was 2000. I think that was 2013. So <laughs> would have been helpful a few years earlier. But <laughs> with that with that being said then, Jordan, you talked to your brother. You're like, okay, we'll start this company together. What were some of the first steps you took? And I know you dropped out of school. Like, I would love to hear more about that decision than to go all out. Yeah. So that that first summer, I think we were really, you know, we had no clue what we were doing, right? And um, we made that very clear for everybody. But luckily, we, <laughs> we got at Georgetown University has a startup launch program um, that they uh, 
allow student entrepreneurs um, to apply for, and we were accepted for that summer. So that was, we were lucky there. And we really dedicated our summer to learning about the industry, um, learning about business in general, um, and really how we were going to get this thing, get this thing going. So we started reading as much as we could about uh, like-minded brands and entrepreneurs. And one of one, one of them was uh, Seth Goldman, who was the founder and CEO of Honest Tea, who at that point in time was just acquired by Coca-Cola. And he had started Honest Tea out of his uh, garage in the late 90s um, and scaled it to <laughs> 100, 100 million plus brand and sold it to Coca-Cola. Um, so in, it was funny enough, he was based right up the road in Bethesda, Maryland uh, from Georgetown. <laughs> we reached out to Seth. Um, and where I'm going with this, I think from a high level is just uh, we had to surround ourselves with people who knew what they were doing because we didn't know. And we were willing to be vulnerable. And again, we've always been athletes. So we were looking for coaches, basically. Um, and Seth was generous enough to spare some time with us early on. And he, he wrote a book called Mission in a Bottle that we read. So we really just immersed ourselves in this learning experience um, from people who have done it before. Um, but at the same time, we knew we needed to put our own touch on it. And what we like to do is really kind of just go for it, right? Jump right in and learn by doing, which we think is the best the best solution ultimately. So that's what we did. That summer, we found a small manufacturer, but we were still doing our, our own manufacturing at that facility. We were making our own, we were committed to making our own deliveries as well. Um, so really running a full-fledged full, uh, operation on our own, um, but just getting a ton of consumer feedback, getting the product into customers' hands and, and having them try it, give us feedback. We'd go back to the facility that night. We'd make changes um, and ultimately improve the product. And at that same time, we were in the startup uh, launch program, just learning about things like product market fit, how you build a team, how you raise capital, how you build a business plan, um, just some of the fundamentals. But it helps you think about the business a little bit deeper and in the next three to five to seven years and what you want to be when you grow up. So um, those are some of the things we did just in that two-month period that really made us think at the end of the summer, wow. This is actually a real business, right? It goes from a concept or an idea to this could be a real business. And that's what ultimately led to to the tough decision of me dropping out of school and giving up my scholarship that fall. With that decision then, I mean, what are some of the things you're thinking about in terms of the progress that you've made up to that point or discussions you had with family members around, you know, I think I'm not going to go back to school. I'm going to pursue this business because there are other people out there who are definitely considering one, either dropping out of school or quitting a job. These are big life decisions. What ultimately pushed you over the edge for that? Yeah, I think the first thing, which was the biggest thing, was was my level of passion um, and excitement and love for the idea and for the potential business there. Um, and was it greater than my love for school and basketball at the time? Um, <laughs> and the answer was yes. And I, I grew up deeply in love with basketball. I think you know sports have been such a big part of my life and my brother's lives and. Um, so I was fortunate to, to find a second love and passion for business, but specifically super coffee. Um, so that was the first big bucket was how much did I really care about this? The second bucket was how much did I really believe in it? Um, and I, I did, I mean, after spending, you know, nine months in school working on it and then two months that summer working on it, um, you know, we saw the opportunity and we thought we could make it happen. So from a business opportunity perspective, we thought it was there. And then lastly, did we actually have enough traction at that point? The answer was no. Um, but, but that was a smaller that was a smaller piece because the reason why I decided to drop out was not because it was going well and we had a reason, right? And there was there was clearly something yeah. here. The reason was that it was going to take so much time, energy, and effort um, 
to prove the concept and scale the brand that I couldn't go back to school. And if I did go back for my sophomore year, Jake was going into his senior year, there was just no way that the business would have been anything, right? We probably would have just kicked it around. And we see that happen with so many young entrepreneurs, especially student entrepreneurs, but a lot of entrepreneurs is they, they muddle around for months and months turn into years. And all of a sudden their, their idea that they had three years ago was no longer even relevant, but because they never got started, they were never even able to, to learn about the industry or evolve. And that's what we learned too, is because we jumped in, because I made that risk, we learned so much faster and we evolved so much faster. Um, and you look at our brand today, five years later, um, it's a completely different company, completely different brand. Um, and I think it's just because of taking that risk and putting ourselves all in um, allowed us to do that. Yeah, the timing is very important, especially looking at you know new categories or new industries. They evolve really quickly, <laughs> a lot of times. And so I'm talking to you know hundreds of entrepreneurs at this point, and how the timing mattered so much in many of these cases where yeah competitors came in relatively quickly after. But the timing, if you don't get it right, you're kind of going to be screwed. And you can have an idea that, like you said, just gets kind of muddled over years of time where you don't make much progress at all. It's a big decision to make. Obviously, it's it's paid off for you. In that decision, though, so once you've made that leap then, what did that next you know few months or year or so look like? What were you focusing on the most uh, in those early days? Yeah. And right from that point, we realized, you know, we needed help <laughs> again. We needed more help. So we kind of <laughs> went out and built, built the advisory board up a little bit more and tried to learn as much as possible. But then we had our, our oldest brother, Jim, um, was working on, on Wall Street at the time. We actually convinced him to come down and join because, again, Jake was going back to his uh, senior year, senior season uh, at Georgetown. So he was full in student athlete still. And I was living on his couch. So we got Jim involved, which was a huge benefit for me um, at the time. And the first thing we needed to do was really raise some capital um, to get the business, uh, the, the fundraising it needed um, just to just to stay in business, just to produce the product, deliver it every day. Um, so we went out and raised about a $60,000 round from friends and family um, at a million dollar valuation. So um, the return on that is a little over 200 times right now. Uh, um, but uh, the key thing then was going out and getting some customers and, and really proving it. So we literally went to a, a local Whole Foods market down in DC because we thought, hey, this is a healthy product. Whole Foods could be a great place to start. Um, thankfully, it was. We got into their local program, and that's really when the work started that fall um, was just us, again, making our own product, making deliveries. We'd go back and we'd pour samples at night uh, and on the weekends, we'd pour samples um, and we'd continue to learn and improve the product. Um, and then we scaled that model that next year. Our whole first year was doing our own production and our own manu uh, deliveries and our own sampling programs. And we worked 20 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, we shared a small little apartment together. We, had, we got interns that summer who slept. We had about eight people in the two-bedroom apartment uh, that summer. Um, and that's what we did. And what it allowed us to do one was learn a ton about our business and a lot about our customers, which is super important. We were getting this hands-on experience every day. It also allowed us a, a lot to learn about what it takes to be a good manufacturer, what it takes to be a good distributor, which now we're learning as Anheuser-Busch is our global partner, how important that really is. Um, <laughs> but all these little things that we picked up that we probably wouldn't have if we would have just raised $5 million out of the gate and tried to streamline the business. So because we did these hard things, 
consistently early on, we picked up a, a lot of valuable insights that were scalable um, and set us up for success for the years to come. So that first year was a lot about uh, just bootstrapping, raising some capital from some angels, um, but really proving the model and trying to scale that just in the mid-Atlantic region. Uh, and that year we went from about one Whole Foods to about 50 Whole Foods on our own before we raised some more capital. Jeez, 50. Yeah, that's that's impressive. And from that as well, is it just one product at that time for that first year? Yeah, just one product. We just had our core original super coffee line. We had three flavors at the time. So it was just three flavors. Um, we did about $250,000 in sales out of our out of our delivery van ourselves. Um, <laughs> and that was enough proof of concept for us, but also for investors too, to say, okay, now we can go out. Uh, we didn't have any, you know, rich friends or family who could continue to fund us. Unfortunately, our parents, you know, were very blue collar workers growing up. Um, and they instilled the work ethic in us. So they didn't have the capital for us. Um, so we had to go out and raise from some angels that year. Um, and then we kind of, you know, put in, in place a more scalable plan. We went out and got a new manufacturer, um, new distributor partners, and that gave us a lot of time when you're not doing the manufacturing or doing the distribution, you can really focus on the sales and marketing side of it. Um, and product improvement side of it. And that's when we kind of ramped up and scaled, scaled the business a lot quicker. Yeah. And, and from that as well, I mean, it's obviously difficult if you don't have connections to really get the fundraising side of it. And that's a problem a lot of people have, especially early on when like, hey, I, I don't have access. And especially if you look at underrepresented founders who really don't have access a lot of times to these networks. How did you go about finding angel investors? How did you go about finding like institutional capital uh, early on? Yeah, I think it it you know it all comes down to leveraging at first, at least, your network um, and and really getting in front of a lot of people, right? Getting a lot of shots up, we like to say. We're going to shoot a really, <laughs> really low percentage, but we're going to get a ton of shots up and you only need one. And then when you get one, you know, hopefully that leads to, to more. And early on, that's exactly what happened. I mean, we leveraged Jim's. Jim was always a great networker and he was our CEO because of his experience in finance and um, being the oldest brother, just uh, that level of, of logic and, and rationality he brought to the business. I was more of a, a founder <laughs> entrepreneur, but, um, so we leveraged his Colgate alumni network. We leveraged the Georgetown network. Um, we leveraged some of our, our family who did invest. We try to get them to make introductions to their friends. Um, so we did whatever it took. We probably were, you know, Jim was probably on the phone with, you know, 50 to a hundred people a month pitching them on, after that first year and to raise a half a million dollars uh, to scale the business. And we pieced it together. And again, it ultimately came down to people just believing in us more so than the, the first year of you know sales, that we had, <laughs> uh, which was really nice. And they loved the passion. They loved the energy. Um, and they obviously believed in the product, but they really believed in us because we loved it so much. So again, that's what the difference maker comes back to is like, we took the risk, we had all this passion, um, and we were actually going out, we were in the mud every single day doing it. And that's why people were willing to bet on us. So I think when you're raising capital, the investors need to know how bought in you are to this. Um, because even if the product isn't great, they'll believe that you'll, you'll figure it out over time. Right. And we'll get, I'm sure we'll get yeah. our shark tank story. Um, we'll, we'll talk about the mistakes that the sharks made on that show. Um, that's, that's next in my queue. So let's, let's, let's go there, Jordan. Talk to me. How, how did shark tank come about? And I would love to hear more about that experience for you. Yeah. So it was just after our second year, um, when we filmed this, um, and you know, the business was doing pretty well in terms of growth. Obviously we weren't profitable or anything, but doing fairly well in terms of growth. We had just raised some more capital too, so we were well funded, and we got a, a introduction on LinkedIn to a Shark Tank producer, and they heard the story, they knew about the brand, um, so they invited us to apply. Which usually, you know, you have to 
which we would have never done, but usually you'd have to go to a screening or, you know, and, and go through this long application process. So we were able to skip a couple steps, which was helpful because um, we thought it was ultimately a distraction. We almost didn't do it. <laughs> um, but we talked to the board and they said, hey, best thing that happens is you guys go on, you look great, you get a deal in front of 8 million people, they love the product. Worst thing that happens is you go on in front of 8 million people, they hate the product, you don't get a deal. But hopefully as brothers, you know, the people who watch the show still love the brand and your energy. So yeah. We figured that, you know, that could happen, but still a good outcome. So um, we ended up going on, we filmed it in 2017, it aired in 2018. So there was a long gap in between when we filmed it and when it aired. Um, and they, they didn't like the product. Uh, they really didn't. Uh, sharks again, were obviously older, um, not CPG experience. There was one guest shark who was CPG experience. He gave us some credit, but, um, they didn't buy into the vision. They didn't buy into the, the taste profile of the product, but again, where they made the mistake was not buying into the three of us um, and just our ability to um, improve or, or innovate quickly or evolve quickly. Um, and that's exactly what we did. Before the show even aired, we had completely rebranded and reformulated all of our products uh, by the time <laughs> the show aired. So while they didn't like it uh, on uh, when we filmed it, by the time it aired, we had something completely different. And I think that's what most great companies are doing. They're evolving really quick. Um, and improving really quickly. So um, it was a tough episode for us, but um, it was really fun and we had a great time and we still use it to our advantage to this day. A lot of people still recognize us just from being on the show, whether it be a retailer buyer or a customer. Um, and that leads to obviously more sales, but also some brand uh, validation and trust too. Absolutely. And to that point, I mean, you're obviously knew you're going to get in front of millions of people who were going to see this, but it's not even just that you were going to get in front of just consumers of the product, also investors in the product. How was that reaction after it aired in terms of the outreach, people who reached out to you, uh, product growth, anything around that? I'd love to hear more. Yeah, it was overwhelmingly positive. I think in the industry, we got a lot of praise um, just for, again, how we showed up on screen, uh, how we presented the business, um, the tenacity that we brought. Um, customers loved it as well. So we got a ton of outreach, ton of sales from it online. Um, and it continues to replay to this day and we still get great reactions from it. So I think there is something about, again, our background story, who we are as entrepreneurs and people, um, you know, very gritty, uh, very hungry, very, uh, humble at the same time. Um, and just taking a loss on national TV that kind of amplified <laughs> who we are and, and elevated our story of kind of the underdogs, right? And you don't think of three student athletes being able to do something like this, dropping out, being able to do something like this. And of course they're going to go on Shark Tank and not get a deal. Right. Um, so I think that it really helped amplify our story. Um, but again, it, it, the response has been, has been great to this day and we continue to use it as part of our platform too. Like we're very proud of the fact that we went on very proud that we didn't get a deal. Um, but you know, we shook it off really quickly and bounced back from it. Yeah, the exposure and everything with it, I mean, can be helpful, especially like you mentioned, having that story. I know Jake Lou from Outer was on Shark Tank. I had him on the show. Uh, Dan Zakowski from uh, Ready, Set, Food. Um, he is also on the show. And then uh, I'm trying to think there might have been one more. But it all, it's always has been helpful and just in terms of the mass exposure, especially being free. Um, Madeline Frazier, another one comes to mind from that. One of the things you mentioned and things I want to dive into, I definitely want to get to you know, manufacturing and growth uh, later on, how it's evolved. But the big thing we haven't talked about yet, working with your brothers, how has that dynamic been setting responsibilities, uh, confrontation? Like, how has that relationship been as working with your brothers on this company? Yeah, I think there's a lot of pros and cons, right? Um, and I think initially, 
I'll start with the, the big pros that I think are, are obvious, but just the level of trust that we have in each other um, and the level of respect that we have for each other is through the roof, like just unparalleled. We were very close growing up. We're very close in age, share the same values, vision. Um, so we're very aligned on the big things, which is super important for any group of founders. I also think that the fact that there's three of us is a really great number. Um, you know, if there's two of you, 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 you <laughs> these one-on-one battles that are tough. If there's four of you, right, it's two-on-two. Two. So the three of us really works out well um, as well. Usually if we get into a big argument, it's just two out of three, right? That makes it easy. But early on, it was, I think our biggest challenge was you're doing, you're all doing everything. Um, and you're kind of getting into each other's strengths and weaknesses, um, you're bumping into each other a lot. And that was a struggle. So probably more confrontation, more fighting early on on things. Now, as we scale the business, you really don't have a lot of time. There's so much going on. So we've learned to kind of diversify and focus on our strengths and then surround ourselves with amazing people um, who can kind of supplement for our weaknesses. Um, so I've kind of split up and really focused on operations um, in the HR side of the business. And um, Jim's really focused. He oversees marketing um legal and finance of course um as the ceo and then jake is really just head of sales um so again we're kind of operating our own departments um overseeing our own teams but again still come together as a senior leadership executive group um to make sure the business has the right the right priorities in place the right vision the right values um so it works really well now um but i think early on we we're we we're bumping into each other quite a bit yeah, a lot to have. I mean, even with any co-founders, it's going to be it's going to be difficult and find the right co-founder. There's a lot of vetting that goes in that process. A little different when you're brothers in terms of vetting. Uh, you're like, okay, well, I know a lot about you already because you're my brother. So obviously, it's easier in some ways, but harder in other ways. With that as well, then going from that Shark Tank outreach and you know it went really well from a at least from the brand perspective of people getting the word out there. Um, not maybe not necessarily the way you would have loved on the show itself. But from there, in terms of expanding, let's talk about the manufacturing side. How did the manufacturing evolved over time and maybe after Shark Tank, but even before then? But I know you mentioned you have your own manufacturing distribution early on, but then going from there to really where you could scale, I would love to hear more about that and how that's gone for you. Yeah. So in you know, food and beverage, beverage specifically, you know, there's like this dilemma early on where um, there are great contract manufacturers, there are great manufacturing partners. Um, that can produce at scale at good cost. So we would basically find a great partner and outsource it. Um, so they could, you know, right, leave it to the experts who know how to do manufacturing and produce millions of, of bottles a day. Um, so that was the ultimate goal. We knew we had to take that path just from working with guys like Seth at Honesty. Like you don't want to own your own full-fledged facility. But the issue there is early on, the minimum volumes required to run at those quality manufacturers are so high that no startup brand with less than a few million bucks in the bank can even afford um, to do to, to produce with them, nor would the manufacturer even give you a chance. Um, yeah. So that was the issue. So we had to go out basically and, and warrant enough volume to raise enough capital, you know, to kind of level up our manufacturing ability. So that first year we were producing it again, and it was a small facility. We were doing our own, almost like a culinary kitchen. We we're producing our own. It would take us 12 hours to produce, you know, 2,000 bottles. Um, so it was just horrible. But we were growing our volume week over week, which was great. And so by the end of that first year, we were like, we, there's no way we can do this anymore if we want to continue to scale um, beyond the mid-Atlantic region, if we want to become a, a East Coast brand and ultimately a national brand. So we started the vetting process through some advisors. Um, we looked at a few different manufacturers across the country 
Uh, we really wanted one in the Northeast that was close to get to. Um, and we found a, an amazing partner who we still use to this day. Um, they produced a lot of similar products. Um, they weren't doing obviously anything coffee related at the time, but um, products that had protein in them that were shelf stable. So the, pr- the manufacturing process that they used was very uh, advantageous for us because we could deliver it dry and it could sit on a shelf without going bad for our product with protein in it. That's a huge advantage and it's been a big part of our, our growth strategy. Um, and they produced a quality product on time, every time. Um, and they've done that for the, for the past four years. Um, their minimums are really high. So we, we took a big chance going with them, but they also took a big chance going with, with us. We were their smallest customer by far four years ago. And now uh, we're one of their largest customers. So they took a chance and it, it paid off for them as well. Why do you think they did take that chance on you? Again, I think it's the same the same thing. They saw three young, hungry kids who were really, really um, passionate about the brand. They understood the trend. They actually did buy in. They knew on the food and beverage side where the gaps were. Um, and there was really nothing in, in nutrition uh, or health and wellness in regard to, to energy or coffee. So they were excited about the, the brand opportunity, but they also really believed in the three of us. Um, is it at least what they told, what they told me to look back on it. So, uh, but again, I think they, they realized there was probably some desperation in my voice too, on our first couple of conversations, cause I was coming off with some long production runs. So they were just willing to give us a shot and ultimately too, like there's, there, they don't lose out, right. If it doesn't work out for them, yeah. you know, n- no skin off their back. But for us, it was like, if it didn't work out, you know, obviously we'd go out of business. So, um, it, it was, it was really, really, um, a great opportunity for us and it, it kind of allowed us to work even harder and say hey we have this opportunity we got to maximize it yeah i love that that risk taking and on both sides a little bit but for them in their perspective i mean yeah seeing three hungry entrepreneurs trying to build this thing if it does work out great i mean it's going to only give them more and more business and it's not really much risk for them um i think it goes to the point too where like people want to help others succeed when they see there's a possibility and obviously you're not going to be dumb about it stupid about the, the opportunity in terms of like you have to have some cred and some capacity. You can't just be hungry in some ways, but it's obviously worked out really well. One of the things that from that, obviously you're able to produce a high, high volume and you've grown the retail side of it tremendously. Take me through how the retail distribution has evolved from obviously Whole Foods you're getting started with to, I mean, you're in Walmart and Wegmans, you're in Wawa, all these different places now. How has that gone about in terms of your approach to growing your retail distribution? Totally. So just to provide some context, I think. So that was, you know, 2017 when we started with them. We were probably in about a hundred stores uh, when we started with them um, and probably had, I think one distributor maybe just coming on board at the time. So a hundred stores, uh, one distributor in 2017, um, no e-commerce business at all. Um, to Four years later today, we're in over 35,000 stores. We have over 500 distributors <laughs> nationwide. Um, and we still use the same manufacturer. So, it, and we, we diversified <laughs> our business a lot. Um, but basically, you know, that's what we mean when, you know, you find a, a partner that can scale with you and maintain quality um, and allow you to scale quickly, right? Took it right off of our plate and allowed us to focus on sales and marketing. So the business has grown, you know, dramatically um, over the past four years and they've still been been with us and we've had our, our ups and downs, obviously, as we've scaled, but um, they've stuck with us and we're, we're still going. So and we think there's still a lot of room left for them to grow too. And we can invest in, in more equipment together too, as we continue to scale. So um, they've really been a great, great partner. And that's what's allowed us really to grow is right, making a great product um, at scale 
that yeah honestly has gotten even better the product continues to get better which is which is the most important thing yeah always evolving always always changing from there and and from that though so there's all these different places did you prioritize certain Certain ones over others. I know you have just 500 distributors, as you mentioned. In terms of those locations, getting was it one at a time? Was it a mass effort of we pretty much signed up a, a lot of the major ones all in a shorter amount of time? Like how did that go? Yeah, we were methodical about regional expansion and then the the channel or the retailer within each region. So we knew we wanted to start in yeah. the Mid Atlantic. We wanted to keep it in our backyard, and we wanted to go up into the Northeast. And that was really our first two and a half two and a half, three years of business was really just the mid-Atlantic region and the Northeast in the top tier uh, retail partners like uh, Whole Foods, like Wegman. Those were some of the customers that we were with in those first couple of years that were really our entire business. Um, and then from there, we kind of looked strategically at, okay, what are the, some of the other markets that we could expand into? And then what are the retailers in those markets that are similar to where we're having success today? So when you look at a big market like Texas, um, which does a ton of volume, um, HEB is the main regional retailer. Um, and they're very similar to Wegman. So we targeted HEB in Texas. When you looked at the Midwest, like what is that core retailer in the Midwest? We looked at Meyer in the Southeast. We looked at Publix. Um, and then finally on the West Coast, there's a lot of natural independent stores, but a lot of Safeways, Ralph's, Vons, things like that. So we kind of strategically scaled East Coast to West Coast, um, kind of one region at a time, but you know, once we once we had it down, we kind of could do a few at a time and go out and build build a team in the market and make sure we were executing well. So um, we kind of put created this expansion plan that would take us from a small regional brand to a national brand in about two years. Um, and we kind of scaled that up accordingly. And again, along the way, you find, you know, the best retailers, the best distributors in those markets, and you really can't settle for, for anything less. Um, and you got to support those markets too. So we realized like if anytime we launch a retailer, we need to, to have a great support plan in place in the field. Um, and we need to make sure we're, we're driving enough volume to warrant space on the shelf. Um, so that's kind of how we, how we put on the business over the past couple of years. When you say the support plan, I mean, what are some aspects of that and going to a new market? I know I've talked to a number of entrepreneurs who've gone, you know, city by city or market by market in different expansion plans. And there's typically a strategy plan for each one. What are even like some aspects or things that are helpful in, in that in terms of going into a new market for you guys? Yeah. And this goes back to the way we started the business, but um, we really believe in the most, ex- the most foolproof way. There's no foolproof way, but the most <laughs> successful way is uh, to have people really good people who care about the brand, who are passionate about the brand in the stores, working with the stores and working with our distributors. So we would always make sure we had at least two to three people ready to go in that market. Um, you know, so if we were launching SoCal, we needed two to three people ready to go um, who knew the industry really well, who knew their market really well, but cared about the brand. And those people are going into stores and literally they're sales reps, but they're literally fighting for shelf space. They're literally fighting for, for mind share in the stores because every space in the store matters and every square inch in the store matters. So we're, we're fighting for ways to, to stand out in the eyes of the consumer, right? Cause we don't have a $25 million marketing budget or a hundred million dollar marketing, budget, but we need to win in the stores. Um, and that's how we built the brand from day one. And we saw how, how impactful it was like just from making our own deliveries. We knew that at Whole Foods, when we made our own deliveries, if we had 10 facings in the cooler, we were going to sell a lot better than if we just had three facings in on the dry shelf. So how do you scale that nationally and train your people to think that same way? And 
that was always the the priority. So any all of our markets, you know, we have over 100 full-time people, but majority of them are sales reps. We have a lot of part-time people in stores as well, just merchandising, just showing up to show our, our partners how much we care about them and how much we care about being a top brand for them. And then on top of that, as you scale, you can layer in various forms of, of actual marketing on top of that. So paid programming at stores, you know, you can pay retailers for space. Um, that's a secondary strategy for us. And then also you can pay... Um, obviously a ton for, for any type of, any form of marketing to drive awareness. Um, but for us, yeah. that was always last on, on our list of, of priorities when we launched a market. From that as well. So I know you, you kind of alluded to this before, but you started retail and only retail originally, but then you're obviously selling online now, direct to consumer in that way. At what point did that come into the business? And I would love to hear about the decision on the timing around, okay, we need to sell from our own side as well how did that come into play yeah i think it, it started early on where we um it was probably 2017 where we started to make online e-commerce a viable channel for us um and the only reason we did it is because we had people reaching out in different regions who you know we weren't distributing there yet but they saw the product on shark tank or something you know so we, we knew that going into shark tank we really wanted to have the business ready um, so we, we were shipping orders online in 2017 into 2018, um, but didn't really start to ramp it up until, until Shark Tank hit. Um, and then we realized, okay, this could actually be a really viable channel for us. This is in 2018, <laughs> which is crazy to think about, um, cause now it's about 20% of our business, um, which is a lot con- considering, yeah. considering how much volume we're doing on the retail side. So, um, it's still growing dramatically for us right now. Um, you know, we're well over a million dollars a month online now and, um, it, it, continues to grow and it's it's efficient um obviously we're spending a lot to grow it um but we can make it really efficient as well so we like the the trajectory of our online business right now but early on it wasn't even a thought until shark tank yeah that's actually something that's <laughs> it's really interesting to hear about how even you think about prioritizing that because to your point you could raise more money and spend more on on paid acquisition to grow that channel how do you think about that? Is there a target you're trying to hit in terms of the growth for that specifically or like as a percentage of the business? Or um, I'd be curious to hear more about how you're looking at the direct-to-consumer side versus retail. Yeah, I think, um, you know, just like any budget, you kind of look at cash out, cash in, um, and what you can actually generate. And, you know, in terms of our strategy too, you know, we think we are first and foremost, still very much a retail focused business. And that's where a lot of our growth and opportunity still lies as we look at the data and what's available. So, you know, 80% of our revenue is still coming from retail. So 80% of our expenses, you know, still go into, into retail for the most part. Um, but then online, um, as it continues to grow, you know, we are fueling it with, with dollars, but yeah, if we, if we think we can be more efficient in other areas like retail, then we'll have to reallocate some dollars. But if we think that for whatever reason, maybe we launch a new product line, Maybe it's only going to be on e-commerce. Then we'll fuel fuel that growth with with e-com. So I think we're trying to keep our spends proportionate, but we're constantly evaluating and monitoring data in terms of where are we getting our highest ROI in terms of like ad spend versus paying for display space in stores, right? Like that's always a question. Yeah. Where does a hundred thousand dollars go better to Facebook ads or to a program <laughs> or to a program with Walmart? And I think that's the hardest question for a fast-growing, uh, multifunctional. CPG brand right now, or any brand that's that's omni-channel on e-com and retail, because there's they're seemingly unlimited opportunities. It's just you don't have an unlimited capital to support those opportunities. So where are you going to spend the money to grow most efficiently? 
Yeah, the, the asset allocation side of things, it's, it's so tricky. Uh, there's always limited resources. So how do you go about that? And especially, like you said, with omni-channel and, and the success you've had in retail as a starting point, but then obviously seeing the growth in direct-to-consumer. One of the things I'm curious about too is with scaling, and obviously you mentioned having a really great partner on the manufacturing side to be able to allow you to, to actually produce the, the product. But what have been the biggest challenges for you in terms of scaling the business? Um, I think... I think a lot of things. One, I think you know our our business is extremely capital intensive, so we have raised you know a little over sixty million dollars um, to date, um, which doesn't seem like a lot to, to tech companies um, that are scaling rapidly. But I think um, you know we're still not still not profitable even at the scale that we're at now, um, which just shows how capital intensive the business is. Yeah, um, and then building the team out too. Obviously, you know people are your most important part of the business. I mean, people are the business, right? So. Um, finding great people, retaining them, incentivizing them, getting them really excited. Everybody has stock options in the brand, but, um, and then with people come, come chaos sometimes. And I think, you know, that's just a natural part of who we are and dealing with that has been, and learning from our people is, is really fun and exciting, but it's also a challenge. And how do you get, you know, a hundred plus people to work together on the same vision, same mission, same values, um, et cetera. And when you're growing at a hundred, 200, 300% per year, you know, it adds an additional layer <laughs> moving so quickly. So I think it's, it's, it's all these things, right. Cause they're all connected in, in one way or another. Um, but you know, you got to make sure you're, you're, you know, efficient with cash. Even if you're not profitable, you got to try to be as efficient as possible. Um, you got to make sure you're, you're finding the best people at all times and co- consistently have a process to evaluate them and, and ensure that everybody's, you know, producing and returning on, on the investment. Um, and then from a product standpoint, you have to continue to improve and evolve, and especially in today. It's such a competitive space. You can't go stagnant. There's there's innovation, certainly, but as important, if not more important, is renovation. And that's just looking at your current your current product portfolio and saying, how can we make this better every six to 12 months? Because in, in a year from now, the product that's on the market today might be irrelevant. Um, so that's, yeah. that's renovation. And then there's innovation of what other categories that are adjacent to our current ones can we go into to grow the business um so that's another challenge in its own right too is because again it comes back to you know resource allocation you you know anytime you launch a new product you're spending money you're spending time you're spending energy taking it away from your core product lines to try something new and as a small business that's that's a risk right because if you spend a lot of time and energy and capital on a new product and that product doesn't go well um you know, you're putting yourself in a, in a pretty tough spot there, but we continue to challenge ourselves with new innovation, but also with renovation as well. And I think that's been a big focus for us, but um, also still very risky. Yeah, so, so risky. And and you mentioned early on that the product originally, you know, you had the original product and you had a couple flavors of it. And at this point, though, there's the regular, the original product, obviously, that you have creamer, espresso, grounds, different ones as well. Yeah. I would love to hear more about that. It was that progression from that. Was it just, I mean, customer demand, what you're seeing in the market, or how you think through that decision making process around taking that risk and you know developing a new product and which one is it going to be? Because it's been interesting to see what you have now versus what you started with. I'd love to hear more about that and how you've gone about thinking about that. Yeah, I think we like to work backwards from from our consumers, um, and we define our our customer as as the healthy hustler. Um, and it's more of a psychographic really than a demographic. And the great thing about coffee is it, it is, you know, you, ubiquitous. You get a lot of coffee drinkers who are 18 years old and a lot of coffee drinkers who are 70 years old, right? Um, so yeah. you don't think about demographic too much. 
um, but more so our customers seeking a healthier lifestyle. They're, they're constantly on the go. They're looking for ways to improve. Um, so we kind of think about our products um, as ways to support that customer's life cycle. And additionally, when we first launched, bottled coffee was actually, the, it's the smallest slice of the pie in terms, in terms of total coffee, um, in terms of the total addressable market. So we were playing in the smallest category, which was good because it was really niche and we were really differentiated, right? Like Starbucks, the category leader was... <laughs> of sugar and 300 calories and we were zero sugar and 70 calories so um, it was a great place to create the brand but then when we looked at the total coffee universe creamer was one that stood out to us too um, not technically coffee but it's this, it's a bigger category than ready to drink same issue um, you have brands like coffee mate and international delight that own the category but are just horrible for you so we wanted to innovate there um, and then that opened up, you know, the idea to go into espressos for some of our, our younger audience who, um, you know, are on the go more often and want something quick. Um, and then pods and grounds, which is the biggest uh, addressable market, um, well over 10 billion, it's almost four times as big as ready to drink is, um, and a much higher margin too, so much healthier business model for us. Um, and we thought that this, you know, in, in 2020, excuse me, that the brand was at the point where enough people would recognize it across the country and online um, to give us a chance. Um, so we launched the pods and grounds. They had vitamins, antioxidants, extra caffeine and L-theanine in them. So they are enhanced. Um, they give you more energy. They help you with focus. It's organic coffee, so it is healthier. Um, and, it, and we do have flavors that pair really well with our creamers. Um, so now we're giving people a full coffee solution in retail and online um, where you can get your pods grounds, mix it with creamer, or you can get your ready to drinks from us. Um, but again, we, they can trust us that it's going to be enhanced in some way. So they're getting a, a better experience than another brand, than any other brand, um, and also a healthier experience than any other brand. And also at really competitive prices to the category leaders. So um, as we scale, we can find those types of adjacencies, but also ways to add value for our customers and create some synergies um, to make it a little bit easier for them to get the products that they want. Um, at more affordable price points. To go and take a step back, one of the things you mentioned just around competing for shelf space in retail and, and really going market to market and having people in those markets to be able to help with that. Just overall, more of a high high view on competition. This category's industry, I'm sure, has been has gotten more competitive since you started in 20, 2015, 2016. How do you look at competition today? Is it something where are you just thinking about the customers? As like Jeff Bezos would say, I, I'm just curious on how you're thinking about competition at this point. We're in 2021 recording this. Um, how does that play into what you do today? Yeah, I think our categories, I mean, food and beverage has evolved a ton. And it constantly is. And our category has grown a ton too. I mean, a ton of players, a ton of innovation over the past five years. So um, I think it's really good to, to have a deep understanding of of your competition and the landscape, but ultimately, um, you know, you, you nailed it. We, we really should be focused about our customers and, and you know, what they want and, and, and what they're <laughs> looking for and try to stay ahead of that too. And ultimately, it doesn't matter what your competition does at that point. If you're, if you're honestly serving the needs uh, and desires of your customers at affordable price points, you're going to be in really good shape. Um, no matter what, as long as you kind of stay focused and stay ahead of that. Um, so that's what we try to do. We try to just offer products that are kind of fitting the needs um, and desires for our customers. Um, we understand what the competition is doing, but we're not paying too much attention to them. Um, and even though we think we, we have 
you know, significant advantages from a product standpoint. We don't take that for granted. We make sure that we're supporting our products in stores, online, um, just so customers clearly, you know, know what it is. It's very accessible, very easy to find. Um, and that's kind of how we've, how we've built the brand successfully, but it's going to, uh, it's more important now, I think, to continue to do it at the high level. So, um, it keeps every time you, you grow, you, there is going to be more people who try to, to, to copy you and replicate you, but you got to just stay true to your customers and make sure you're, you're adding value for them first. Yeah. And you've done obviously a great job with that, which has allowed you to grow over time. But even looking at, just kind of changing topics a little bit, you, you know, early on you're bootstrapping at, at first, but then you raised at $60,000 from family and friends, raised a half million dollars or so uh, early on as well. Obviously Shark Tank influence getting more, more investors. And then last year raising like 25 million at a $200 million valuation. I know when you start the company, you're obviously thinking it's going to be success, which is why you're starting it. You're giving yourself a chance, but to see th- that level of va- valuation, that much capital raised last year, does it seem does it seem real to you? I mean, wh- how do you feel about where the company is at today? Uh, you know, five or six years in, I'm just curious. Yeah, I think you know when you reflect on it, it's it's an amazing story, an amazing journey. I feel like I was in my dorm room, you know, yesterday working on it. Um, but it's really cool. I think it. Uh, it, it should be a great story and sign for a lot of other entrepreneurs. Um, you know, America really is, you know, I like to say the land of opportunity. And, um, I think our story is, is proves that. Um, but at the same time, we think that we're still really just getting started. Right. And we have to have that mindset. Yeah. We're thinking three to four years from now, we think, Hey, we're still just scratching the surface here. Um, so while we've come a long way, We've learned a lot. We've accomplished a lot in a short period of time. We think, you know, we're still, the opportunities are, are you know, seemingly endless. Um, so I think we're more focused on the future than the past. But when we do stop to reflect, it is a crazy, a crazy thing to see where we've come from. Um, but it just assures us, right? Like, thankfully, it assures us that our, our crazy thoughts and notions, when everybody told us no, everybody said it, was, it wasn't possible. But for whatever reason, right? Um, yeah. We proved that it was and that you can do it. And it, really, you can do it in a short period of time at a really high level. And that's exactly what we've done. And, um, you know, I just think that if if more entrepreneurs or more people had that level of confidence or assurance, I think we'd have more successful startup brands. And I think we're seeing it more, especially in food and beverage. But um, our story should be a model for any other entrepreneur who's considering to, to do it or not. Yeah, and obviously it, it shows that it can be done, and it, it's not, it's clearly very difficult and challenging to to be able to do it. But you've you've proven it's it's something you can do if you have that mentality that you're going to make it happen. Especially in looking at the product itself as well, being differentiated and something different in the market, I think is important as well. And with your demographic being you know, the healthy hustler, as you mentioned, how do you personally then take care of your own health, your own mental health? Uh, all of that, how do you invest in yourself in terms of making sure you can perform at your best every day? Yeah, no, it's a great question that we take really seriously. And I think, um, you know, first thing is just from a nutrition standpoint, we try to eat, um, you know, as healthy as possible. We keep it balanced, but listen to our body. So most of the time, I'm, you know, in terms of nutrition, I'm trying to overhydrate and stay really hydrated. Um, But very, you know, keto aware, I'd call it. I'm not ever really in a state of ketosis, but um, very rarely am I eating carbs on a daily basis. Um, and if I do, it's in small quantities and I am fasting on a, on a daily basis as well. Um, I just feel better, um, when I'm fasting. Um, what kind of fast? Just curious. It's just an 18 hour intermittent fast. Yep. Um, usually break it around, you know, 12 30, one o'clock with something keto and I'll introduce carbs at night 
after a workout. Um, and in the mornings, um, you know, if I'm not working out in the mornings, depending on the schedule, I'm one of the guys who can really work out either in the morning or, or evening. I'm not married to either one. Um, I do prefer mm-hmm. mornings when I have, when I'm up and I have the energy, but Same. <laughs> uh, again, I need, I, I'm somebody who needs seven hours of sleep, seven, eight hours of sleep. Um, so I'm pretty religious about that, but meditation has been big for me. I practice transcendental meditation, usually in the mornings, um, once in the morning, once in the afternoon. And that's just a great pause practice. There's a lot going on constantly on the phone, constantly in email, constantly planning, constantly, right. Living in the future. Um, and it's good to kind of get back to present moment. Um, focus on your mantra, um, kind of relaxes, calm, calms you and helps you really focus on, on the tasks that need to get done. Um, so meditation has been big and then working out no matter what is a kind of like a non, non-negotiable um, for me as well. So it's kind of eating, it's a combination of sleeping, getting enough sleep, eating a diet that really allows me to feel my best um, and perform my best, um, working out daily and then meditating. Those are the four types of things that kind of keep me in line. Coming from an exercise sports science degree background I have, I'm curious, what's the, what's the workout for you uh, typically? Or what's it looking like now? I mean, pandemic times, so maybe different. I'm curious. Yes. Remember, I was a basketball player. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Try to get keep some cardio in there. So usually starting with like a mile or two on the, on the treadmill and keep it like, you know, push myself, but don't kill myself on the, on the runs. <laughs> um, and then some sort of just weight lift, I think. Um, that's one thing when I am keto and fasting and running on a daily basis, you know, losing weight is, is an issue. Um, so I just try to get a, 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 some sort of weight lift in for 30 to 45 minutes. Um, and I'll mix it up pretty standard. Nothing, nothing too special or crazy. I'm, I'm not, and like we'll do like if we're with friends or, or, you know, doing classes or traveling, mm-hmm. you know, we'll see, we'll do a hit workout or something like that. But, um, try to keep it pretty standard and straightforward with, with weightlifting when I'm in New York and then. Um, running has really just been, been a blessing for me. It, uh, again, kind of a form of meditation as well. Um, running, yeah, um, yeah. but just keeps, make sure I'm staying in shape, which is, which is huge. Yeah. It, it is a nice uh, fallback to have that, uh, the run consistently just I mean, for in terms of an activity that burns a lot of calories and can also then be some people either listen to audiobooks or listen to music, but then it is a, almost a form of meditation I've found from, from my own kind of psyche to take a break from the day, uh, to just go for a run, which is actually what I'll do next after this interview is go for a run and kind of meditate in some ways as well. And, and I can't stress enough, obviously the importance of people taking care of themselves. And I love hearing that from entrepreneurs who really do understand it. And like when I interviewed uh, Matteo Franceschetti from eight sleep, the sleep fitness company, and he mentioned committing to like nine hours sleep now. And he's seen wow. the differences in his health going from eight to nine. And I'm like, well, that's a lot of hours, but yeah. I'm like that. I can see the benefits of, of that in terms of how you feel and how you function, especially in a founder high level role of being able to understand decision-making is so important in your day to day that you really need to be at your best to make good decisions constantly. Yeah, totally. Um, totally. And I think two other, two other quick things that, you know, I didn't mention. Yeah. yeah podcast always, um, when I'm working out as well, um, or traveling podcasts, I think are, are huge for me, whether it be leadership management or just listening to other founders or, or things that are relevant for that, that time period. And then reading, um, try to read at least, um, a few pages a night, you know, sometimes it's hard, it's hard after a long work day, you know, and, yeah, you're pushing yourself, but a few pages a night, at least sometimes more. And then on the weekend, saving that time too to really rest and recover. So one thing our leadership coach really been stressing on us, like on the weekends, just try to put the phone away, right? Keep the phone in, the, in another room if you can. 
um, and just really be present over the weekends. Get your sleep, get your workouts in, obviously. But like if you're with your girlfriend or you're with your family, like really be there, be present. Um, and I think pressing reset on the weekends has been the biggest difference maker for us because early on we were, work- as I mentioned, we were working all weekend, every weekend. Yeah. Um, and that's been the biggest, biggest difference maker, I think, for, for our long- longevity and just uh, our mental health. What are some of the books uh, you're reading now or, or even in the past that you think are highly suggested? I'm curious. Uh, right now I'm reading uh, Invent and Wander, the Jeff Bezos uh, book um, that just came out. Uh, yeah. Walter Isaacson. And, and funny, I was, I'm on a Walter Isaacson kick, I guess. I finished this. It was when Steve Jobs uh, yeah. right before. Um, and then before that, recently, um, No Rules Rules by Reed Hastings at Netflix. Um, so that was really good. I uh, really recommend that. Um, and then a couple of the great ones. Like I love some of the old old school stuff too, like the effect, effective executive um, uh, is one that I constantly recommend. High Output Management by Andy Grill. Mm. Again, old school, yep. but really, really good. Um, some more recent ones. Um, I recommend Dare to Serve by Cheryl Batchelder a lot. She was the CEO of Popeyes and kind of led their, their turnaround in the in the uh, mid 2000. So, um, I mean, there's so many great books on leadership and management, but I tend to stick with, um, I, I do like Harvard business review, but I tend to stick with authors that have done it before and are really in the mud still doing it. Um, just because I can really relate to it. Right. It's, it's one thing to, to do it based on, you know, a professor's feedback. And I love Adam Grant's some of his stuff too, but, um, you know, I love reading Howard Schultz from Starbucks or Howard Bihar from Starbucks and just people who have been actually in it at the highest levels. Some of the yep. issues, you know, Ben Horowitz's, you know, hard thing about hard things, right? Or uh, what you do is who you are is another great book by Ben Horowitz. Like those things are just invaluable to read. Um, so I try to read those books because I find the most value in them from a leadership standpoint, um, but also just practical way of dealing with things. It's like you realize you're not going to have the answer to everything as a leader. A lot of it just comes down to how do, how you conduct yourself and how do you work well with with great people around you? Because um, I think a lot of times founders and entrepreneurs put a lot of pressure to to know everything, be right all the time, and do everything, and it's really not true. Um, and another really good book is Principles by Ray Dalio, and that can uh, yep. change the way I think about you know life in general. But um, really helped me from a from a leadership leadership standpoint. Um, and I think it's invaluable to really be able to to leverage principles in terms of how you're going to operate with other people um, and how you're going to leverage them to achieve your goals. Jordan, where can people go to learn more about Super Coffee and all the things you guys are doing? Yeah, I, I definitely recommend um, the so, social media platforms, Instagram, just at Drink Super Coffee, because um, we'll post most of our content up there. And then our website, you know, to learn more, just try the products out, drinksupercoffee.com. Um, but Instagram, we're, we're pretty active and engaging and you can hit us up if you have questions or want to learn more, feel free to reach out to us directly too. So, um, yeah. Jordan, I appreciate you sharing your story. This has been a lot of fun for me. So many details you, you shared, uh, so many different things that people can take away from this. Thank you so much for the time. Awesome, man. Thanks so much, Justin. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. If you want to follow along on the socials for all things Just Go Grind and with me as well, find just go grind on instagram and twitter at just go grind you can find me on twitter at justin gordon 212 find me on instagram justin gordon 8 thank you so much for listening have a great day